Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen, and I'm going to begin uh, with something that I, I don't think I've ever done, which is point back over my shoulder in the rearview mirror and say, if you did not hear the conversation that I had uh, in, the, in the last episode there with Lori and Matt Krieg um, about their book, An Impossible Marriage, um, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation on air that I think is more important for the days in which we live. So... Um, I know you're listening to this hour of Mornings with Carmen, but if uh, you would go and get the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com of uh, of the conversation that I just had with Lori and Matt Krieg, K-R-I-E-G, the book is An Impossible Marriage. Let me just tell you, it is it is it's possibly the most important and redemptive conversation we've ever had on this program, which is saying a lot because we have a lot of those conversations. Um Okay, uh, we've been talking a lot this week about what it means to be a Christian uh, as a dual citizen, this nature of dual citizenship that we live in. We are indeed citizens of the household of God, co-heirs with Christ, uh, of the kingdom of heaven. This world is not our home. We know that. We, uh, we are on our way uh, home to the Father's house. Um, but in the same way that Jesus walked in the reality, walked out the reality of the kingdom of heaven right here in the midst of the kingdoms of this world— so too he charges us as his people to do the same. Like that's who we are in the world. We are kingdom representatives, big K, of a big king, big K, in the midst of the kingdoms, little K, of this world, right? So we are invested with the spirit of the living Christ. We now live as demonstrations of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the world. That means that we represent the king. We make the kingdom principles known. But in order to do that, we have to know the king and we have to know what the kingdom is like. Now, here's the good news. Jesus told us God has revealed what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus actually started lots of sentences this way. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like a great treasure. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. In fact, it's already and not yet. So the kingdom of heaven is is like the scattering of seed, he says in another place. Some takes root. Some that takes root flourishes. Some that takes root is uh, withered away, choked out by the world. Some never takes root. It just just, just snatched away. I mean, you get the, right? Jesus is talking about the kingdom a lot. And so reread the Gospels, look for the kingdom of heaven is like language. The king and the kingdom become more real for us than the realities that we face in a given day if we are people invested with the Holy Spirit, given over to the living God. And what a privilege it is to live as a representative, representing King Jesus, and a representative of the kingdom that knows no end. I I love it. I love getting to do that every day. I hope you do too. I am looking forward to the return of the king. All right, Peter Kapsner is up next. He and I are going to survey some pretty interesting stories today. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Peter Kapsner joining us now. He is going to explain why World War II ended the way that it did, or World War I ended the way that it did because a carrier pigeon sent by one German military officer to another dropped the message, and it has just been found 110 years later. This is really extraordinary, right? Okay, you are a military officer in 1910, and your system of communication is carrier pigeon, and you very dutifully write your message, and you roll it up, and you stuff it in a small aluminum capsule that you tie to the leg of a carrier pigeon, and somehow that carrier pigeon drops it uh, over a field in northeastern France, and in the year 2020, some hikers pick it up. That's pretty amazing. I mean, phenomenal. It is a phenomenal story, Carmen. I love it. It, it actually, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm turning 50 here in a couple of weeks. I expect big gifts for from you and Paul for sure. But um, but but I'm old. The point of that is that We're I'm gonna old enough. We're going to let you come back. I, that's, <laughs> Thank that's you. That's all I got. Uh, the point of that is that, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we used to write letters, like what was mm. on part of this carrier pigeon. And, and I remember when my wife Hallie was down in, in Mexico, I believe, at one point, and I was here in the States. And when you wrote a letter, you know, it would take two, three, four days to get somewhere. And I think what I love about that is we preserved some of those letters from back in that day. And and when you see a handwritten note, like what was dropped here as part of this carrier pigeon, it, it kind of takes you back in some really authentic ways. You're not guessing about history. You may have to interpret history a little bit, but you have the actual data in front of you. It's not being uh, interpreted or, or collated through somebody. I've got a, a friend of mine who's a curator at the Minnesota Historical Society here locally, and she talks about the treasures that she finds when uh, just stuck in people's homes or attics or whatever that give us a sense of that history. And so I love this story, Carmen, and I was, I was thinking about then even the importance of the kinds of things that the ancient Israelites did that they often in very physical, tangible ways chronicled what was going on in their lives that would be able to be left behind for the people that would follow. And so as you would well know, when God was faithful in some kind of way, they would build what was called Ebenezer stones that then they could come back to over and over and over again and get a real sense of history and get a real sense of what was going on in this time and what God was up to. And I just think with information becoming such a commodity over the last 10 to 15 years with Google and just sort of throwaway information, we don't really consider so much of where we've been. This story was so great because it just takes us back into a season and helps us understand what happened. I think we've got to do that kind of stuff spiritually. I think we have to do it relationally. Uh, I wish I was a better journaler than I am, but to the extent that I've done that kind of work, it, it kind of has a settling reality, doesn't it? In terms of, oh, I remember God was faithful back then. How did I ever forget this? And when you see this kind of evidence, it really reminds you of who you are and whose you are. And God, who was faithful in the past, will be faithful in the future. I'm thinking here of uh, Ellie Holcomb's really, really simple little children's book, Don't Forget to Remember. Oh, right. And uh, and I'm thinking, okay, 110 years from now, <clears throat> it is going to be 2130, I think. I'm so bad at math. Am I right? <laughs> I, and, I, think, I think it's pretty close, okay. yeah. <laughs> 110 years from now, it'll be 2130. It's hard to imagine that anything we might write down today would be worthy of the people in that day and time mm. um, receiving and reading. So... I'm going to give you an opportunity here, Peter. Um, what would you say to your grandchildren's grandchildren? Yeah, boy, that I think what you led with, Carmen, at the top of the segment or the top of this hour before our segment is something that has been impressed upon me so deeply is that whatever else God's sovereignty means, and, and, and it means a lot of different things, but the thing that is most compelling about God's sovereignty to me is that God is, uh, he is the king of a kingdom that 
really cannot be assailed by whatever else is going on in this world. And if you were to read, uh, to read history books in 2130 about what's going on in 2020, you would read about global pandemics. You, you, would, lead, uh, you would read about one of the major powers in this world, the United States of America, being so unbelievably divided. You would read about confusion in people's uh, sexuality and sexual journey and identity. You would read about fractures among races. You would read about famines around the world. You would read so many difficult things. And yet, here's what I would guess, is that in 2130, you know it's still going to be true? God's kingdom still will know no end. And, and, and there is a kingdom of which we are part that, yes, we are citizens in this world, as you have rightly said, but our citizenship in this world is defined and informed by uh, being citizens of the only eternal kingdom. Those are the things that I want my kids and my grandkids, whatever their challenges are that you and I cannot foresee in 2020, that I know will be true. Amen. Uh, amen and amen. All right, let's uh, let's take a very brief break. When Peter and I come back, we're going to talk about a story that is um, literally cool. Literally cool. It's about boring into an ice shelf Love and story. finding there evidence of a biblical story. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, because I read widely enough to bring you stories and information that you literally are definitely not going to find anywhere else, <laughs> I am talking with Peter Kapsner now about a story I found in the affluenttimes.com. I know. A very incredible resource, I'm sure. It, it is, actually. I, it is very you, solid. It is. It is. All right, but it's just not one we turn to very often. Okay, right. so this is a story about an ice core drilled out of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, that uh, seems to confirm a story from the Old Testament. Now, now there are things in here with which I would definitely take issue, particularly the way they describe historical events. But I'm going to read a sentence to you and then just let you go. Uh-oh. Um, we're going to look at the precise details of discovery in a moment. But first, let's learn more about Kilimanjaro itself. And this tale takes us back many millions of years to a time before humans evolved in Africa. And I have to run with that. Wow. This, <laughs> the story is about the story in the Bible that they think that they are confirming. And does not is not seem odd to you? Yes, there is some confusion there. It's a story there. about confirming a biblical narrative, and yet they are going to describe this as having taken place millions of years yeah, ago. I, right. Before, like, I, so... I no, there is some help, confusion there. Yeah, for sure. Me. Yeah, there, there are, you know, without getting into the thorns of that conversation, there certainly are some Christian um, biologists and scientists that would suggest that, that a certain kind of reading of Genesis 1 and 2, staying faithful to the biblical text, allows for, you know, millions of years. But uh, that's, that's an issue that's way bigger than we want to talk about this morning. But to your point, the, what they believe they found in the drilling through this, this ice of Mount Kilimanjaro was evidence of the drought that took place during the time of Joseph roughly Genesis 37 through 50. So however you understand Genesis 1, and, and specifically in terms of time, you can trace the narrative uh, of people uh, back into Genesis 30. It's about 10,000 years or so to the time of Abraham. And so it is a little confusing for sure that they would say that it was these millions of years ago. But what I love about the story, Carmen, 
independent of how we evaluate the evidence and the veracity of their claims that they're finding evidence of a biblical story. I think what I was most intrigued by in this story was that that same story about the famine and, and about the drought and the potential famine, it also shows up in other major religious traditions in their sacred text, including the Quran of the Islamic faith, including some of the sacred texts of Judaism. And that's where I get so compelled by the idea of being able to verify some of the stories of Scripture uh, through a variety of different ways. But one of the ways is when when other religious traditions or other secular traditions speak of a similar kind of event. And, and you see that with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a Babylonian tale of the flood. There's multiple flood stories out there. And so for those people who may be skeptical and say, well, the Bible is just a series of fairy tales, it's a series of fables, it's really compelling evidence when you read uh, other takes on what happened in these global events at that time. And I, I love the story. It was it was fascinating to see the, the potential of biblical evidence. But I was telling you during the break, I'm always a sucker for these sorts of things. And I remember growing up watching In Search Of, and when they found fragments of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, I mean, I, I was all in. And of course, they were finding Sasquatch in the same episode. But I, I loved the, you know, the evidence that was being found there. I only have a little shout out to Lonnie Thompson. Lonnie Thompson is the uh, is the lead on this um, on this scientific effort. Uh, Ohio State University geologist Lonnie Thompson camped for more than a month at an altitude of nineteen thousand three hundred feet on the slopes of Kilimanjaro Amazing. in order to retrieve the ice cores. I, don't <laughs> like, know. I like, feel like that's a guy. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and I think you and I missed our calling. I mean, right? No, nineteen thousand feet Ooh. and being able to find biblical evidence drilling through ice cores. Uh, That's I some just, thin air up there, man. It is some thin air, indeed, indeed. All right, 90 to, 92 porters to carry the ice down. I'm just telling you, like, it's a cool story. It's a great no matter, story. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a great opportunity, I think, particularly when we you know we're talking with we're talking with young people about uh, about science and the conversation. Uh, you know, at the intersection of science and faith, there's lots of references today to, you know, follow the science, follow the science. Well, even when you follow the science, guess who you find? Mm-hmm. The, you know, and I think that's such an important point, Carbon, because again, and, and I say it often, I know, but I'm I'm with the next generation, which increasingly is getting distant in age from me, right? I mean, they're, you know, when I first started teaching at the age of 32, 33 at university level, I, I felt roughly akin to the kinds of things that our, our young people were thinking and about the future of our faith and, and the people who will be ambassadors of this kingdom long after you and me, Paul, and everybody are, are gone. There's going to be more ambassadors for the kingdom. And the questions that they are asking at the ages of 20, 21, 22 really are different kinds of questions than what we would have asked at similar ages. And that intersection that you just referenced of science and faith is critical to them. I I don't think we can overestimate how much, uh, quote, education they've had about how to trust science and the, and the facts of science. And, and then by contrast, the deconstruction of, uh, of the biblical evidence and, and biblical facts ha- has really been part of their journey as well in the last probably 15 years. I know uh, in my realm of Bible theology, there was a consistent and concerted attack against the veracity of Scripture over these last 15 to 20 years. And our young people really are the byproduct of that. And so there's sort of this inherent skepticism about the scriptures as being, oh, you know, that was back from previous generations. We know much better because of science. And I think those two fields can come together in really beautiful ways. And and some of my favorite classes that I've ever took or been a part of have to do with that intersection of science and faith. And you see how they really do begin to inform one another. And our young people need to be able to hear about that. 
All right. So the investigation into the ice cores shows evidence of a drought in Africa that started some 8,300 years ago and it persisted for 500 years. Um, And then the ice also showed a later drought that took place around 5,200 years ago. Just saying it's really cool. Okay. Uh, Literally. Okay. um, Next, I read this article that um, made me, I set it aside and I'm like, I'm going to talk to Peter about this. So this article really provokes, I think, a fascinating conversation about baptism. I am not going to get into all of the the theology related to the baptism of babies in this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pose the question that this person posed to a secular, uh, you know, sort of like Ask Amy, if that's what it's called. You know, right. But just, you know. All right. So here was the question. I grew up in a conservative Catholic family, went to 12 years of Catholic school, decided to leave the Catholic faith. My husband was raised in uh, without a religious background. Ten months ago, we welcomed our first child, my parents' first grandchild. We have decided not to have her baptized, which is curious that it was even a conversation. Um, and my family is very upset. So the, the the grandparents want the baby baptized. And I would just like for you to address, like, it, and, and they're considering it. Like, I'm just like, what? Okay, yeah. go. Yeah, and I know we just have a, uh, about a minute. So I think this would be a great conversation for you and I to have a, an extended segment on. But I think what we see in that, that I think we could talk much more about, is the evolution uh, of theological ideas, even from one generation to the next. And mm. and when you study the history of the church and, and, and you see these key moments in historical times in which theology shifts, baptism and confirmation is one of those areas that we've seen a major shift in just from my grandparents' generation to the kids today. And it would be so interesting to mine that out a bit because we do see fractures and concerns and and, and, and families even falling apart over this theology of baptism where just even two generations removed from the grandparents, the kids or the parents, they have a very different understanding of what's going on. Why might that be? What would be the factors that would go into that? I think it might actually help empower people to have these difficult conversations about these traditional and very important rituals in our faith. Yeah, and I think that it provokes a real conversation among those who come from um, traditions where babies are baptized. For sure. Really ask the serious question. There's no way these two people could stand up there and in literally in good faith say, we're going to raise this child in the context of a believing community um, that at the time, you know, of their uh, when, you know, when God reveals himself to them personally, they're going to make their own profession of faith. There's no way these people could. No, for sure. Well said. Yeah. 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 All right. uh, Peter Kapsner, as always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We really appreciate it. Have a great day, man. Yeah, you too, Carmen. Thanks. We'll be right back. All right, Peter and I were probably a little inexact in our conversation uh, for the taste of some of you. I recognize that. Um, uh, I don't think that when Peter um, made reference to Abraham living 10,000 years ago, he was uh, trying to give an exact date. I think he was trying to... um, give us a time frame to juxtapose against sort of the quote-unquote millions of years ways that other people talk. So, yeah, Um, maybe like 4,000 years ago for Abraham in terms of a timeline. Okay, Um, and again, that's an exact as well. You could actually do the biblical math. It's actually not hard to do. One generation leads to another generation. The years are all in there. It's actually a pretty fun math exercise to do. All right, Andrew Peterson is up next. I feel like he needs no introduction. Today, he and I are going to focus in on the Wing Feather Saga. And yes, 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 I have some copies to give away. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. It is finished, Jesus declared as recorded in John 19 and verse 30, to tell us time. Three words in English, only one word in Greek. 
Remove your hat. Take off your shoes. Silence all chatter. Lower your eyes. This is a holy word, a sacred moment. When Jesus was 12 years of age, his parents found him in the temple talking with the rabbis. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Even as a boy, Jesus had a sense of the family business, the work of redemption. Indeed, the Greek word tetelestai carries overtones of a business term. It was used to signify paid in full on debts such as levies or a tribute. The term indicates a finalized transaction. Christ's word on the cross declares the same. No further offering is needed. Heaven awaits no additional sacrifice. And if that doesn't qualify as a miracle, what does? Remember, friend, you are never alone. Really fun to be welcoming back today Andrew Peterson. You know him as a singer, a songwriter, the author of the Wing Feather Saga. Andrew, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so fun. So um, I want to talk today about all the live events that are now virtual. I want to talk about what pandemic life has been like for you. Um, but let's lead off with a conversation about this kind of big news that the Wing Feather Saga series is now like this beautiful I mean, it's just beautiful four book set and it's come out in, you know, in a really beautiful format. I know you were actually kind of excited to just see it on a bookshelf at a bookstore. So talk with us about uh, about what's out right now that's new for books. Well, it's like every author's dream is that their books would last long enough for like a special edition hardcover, you know. Right. So I'm still geeking out about it. I can't believe it. So the books came out. I think the first one came out in 2008 and I had started writing it about five years before that. So this is like a long journey for me. And uh, the one of the cool things about writing books as opposed to music is that books have like a way longer shelf life than music does, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Literally. Like, yeah. And so like I put out a record and then about, you know, a month later I start getting emails from people saying, when is your new record coming out? And so people are, music just kind of like comes out and hopefully it lasts, but you know, not like books. And so it's been so cool to like have the, the book part of what I do kind of grow over the years. And so when Random House uh, agreed to release these books in hardcover, it gave us this cool chance to redo the covers and to fill them with new illustrations. And so it's just like the 12 year old kid in me is freaking out. It's so fun. So 12-year-old kids, um, that's a, that's kind of a good group to talk about. Let's actually talk about um, who this series is maybe being most appreciated by, because you actually know that. You have a lot of evidence. Kids write to you all the time about this. So just for people who are com- completely unfamiliar with the Wing Feather Saga, introduce them to it. And then, you know, I'm just going to tell them it's a four-book series. It's amazing. And I have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. So, Andrew, tell us about the Wing Feather Saga. So I, w- I wanted to write books before I, I got into music. So, I, you know, when I was in high school, music was kind of your fallback. Yeah. Which is a terrible (laughs) fallback. Um, I know, but I, you know, I was way into comic books and I read fantasy novels when I was a kid and loved movies, all that kind of stuff. And then music became the thing that I felt like God had called me to. But the whole time I was doing, doing music in the back of my mind, I was like, I just got to know what it feels like to write a big epic fantasy novel. The kind of book I would have loved when I was a kid. And so when my kids were probably five or six years old, I read the Narnia books to them. 
And that was what did it. I was like, okay, I, I just have to do this. I have to know what it's like to, to fight my way. Create a, a world. I, I mean, you really, you, yeah. cause you create a whole world. Yeah. And that, which, which, you know, if, if Tolkien is one end of the spectrum and, and C.S. Lewis is the other end, I leaned more toward the Tolkien side of things where I really wanted the world to feel its big, vast, epic mm-hmm. world with its own history and that kind of thing. But I also, you know, have a soft spot for the Princess Bride and Monty Python. So there's a little bit of goofiness in the, in especially in the earlier in the series. But I just loved the idea of having a, a world where the scariest thing that lives in the forest is called the toothy cow. So it's this fanged <laughs> cow that lives in the woods. And, and uh, <laughs> but there are also dragons and sword fights and the whole thing. And uh, but I really oh, yeah. they're to... wicked, wicked stranders, ridge runners, the trolls, you know, I cloven you haunt, know the cloven. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Fa- yeah. Yeah. Monsters, fangs, uh-huh. the fangs. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. so I wanted there to be this like childlike color to the story, but I also wanted the stakes to be real, you know? And so really the story is about in many ways, what's going on in the hearts of these kids. So there's these three kids, the Igaby children who are these siblings that live in a little village that's overrun by these creatures called the Fangs of Dang. And in book one, they stumble upon a secret that changes their lives forever. And so Mm -hmm. it's this big, big story. So anyway, I, it's, uh, I've been reading them aloud on Facebook so that we mentioned the pandemic earlier that I was on tour in March. I was actually in England on tour in March when when everything got crazy. And like I remember one day, I think we were in Glasgow, Scotland, we when when we realized that the borders were about to close and we had to come home. And so we just <laughs> had to cancel the tour, came home, but at the time like like a lot of people I think we were like, okay, this is going to be about a month of craziness. And uh, then the next tour canceled. My Easter tour got canceled. Then the summer shows got canceled. And then the fall shows got canceled. And the Christmas tour got canceled. So I, we just kind of all found ourselves going, what are we going to do? So in March, when all the kids were sent home from school and everybody was indoors because it was cold, I just thought, I'm just going to read my books aloud. And so I started reading 30 minutes a night on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, it just became one of the great parts of this whole year for me. It was amazing. Um, there were so many families tuning in. So so you guys can still um, enter into that on Facebook with Andrew Peterson. You can also check out the entire Wing Feather Saga series and extra maps and artwork, a pronunciation guide, which you will need, coloring pages, all kinds of cool stuff at wingfeathersaga.com. So um, Andrew and I are going to pivot our conversation a little bit after the break. So let me just say again, if you're interested in the drawing for the Wing Feather Saga series, because we actually have sets of all four books. And so you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Andrew Peterson and I will be right back. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. I know it's hard to hear. Continuing my conversation with Andrew Peterson, uh, I invite you to visit him. He's on all the socials. Andrew-Peterson.com is a great one-stop place to find all of his links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also check out the entire Wing Feather Saga series at wingfeathersaga.com. Uh, Andrew, let's uh, let's talk about life because we recently talked with Kristen Getty about the Evensong Project, and I'm wondering what it's like to now hear your daughter, Sky. You know, as a mm. as an artist that other people are listening to and appreciating. Oh my goodness! 
I can't. I don't even have words for it. It's just one of the best things ever. All three of the kids are are flourishing in creative ways, and uh, and they actually all got together. One one of the cool things that happened because of lockdown was that they were all stuck at home uh, more or less. Because Aiden, you know, they closed the campus at Lipscomb, so Aiden, our oldest, was home. Sky was still finishing up high school. Asher lives a few minutes away. And Jamie and I kept telling them, you guys need to make a record together. You guys should make like a sibling album because Sky has released a few EPs. Asher's been producing records. Aiden's like the guy who he's mainly a visual artist, but he kind of like sits in his room and writes, you know, these brilliant songs. And then he's kind of the got this weird, uh, fascinating to me thing where he doesn't really feel the need to share them with people. He doesn't like to be on stage, really. But he's writing these amazing songs. And so it, it it adds to his intrigue, I think, a little bit. And so anyway, they said yes. So the kids kickstarted a record. Um, they named their band Wake Low, uh, W-A-K-E-L-O-W, which is named after that big storm thing that came through Nashville. It was called a Wake Low system. And so anyway, they released that record. And then the Gettys invited Sky to sing on on one of their, a few of their songs, actually. And so, man, it's just the best thing. It's the best thing. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have just bawled like uh, boohoo cried watching our kids um, using their gifts for the kingdom. So that makes you and Jamie like empty nesters. Like yeah, recently. baby. Yeah. As of, <laughs> as of about two weeks ago. Yeah, we, we dropped Sky off and we were talking to Aiden about it. He was asking what it was like. And we were like, you know, the fact that right now, at least the kids aren't, they're all doing great. You know, I, yeah. I have no illusions that, that life is going to be perfect for them. But in this little narrow window of time, each of them, they're just kind of like doing their thing and working hard and and they're healthy. And so we're just that what that means is that Jamie and I have this freedom to go guilt free, go out to lunch as often as possible. So absolutely. So, and the thing like I remember we dropped Sky off at, at school and uh, Jamie and I went and got lunch somewhere and it was like 20 bucks. And we were like, oh, my goodness, you mean we can eat out for 20 dollars <laughs> instead of whatever the 50 was that we had to pay when it's everybody. So. And the, the nice thing is that Jamie and I actually like each other. You know, we have been married for 25 and a half years now. And and I'm so thankful that she still likes hanging out with me. And you're still like the create. You've not lost your creative edge. In fact, it seems to be like finding ever new, wonderful expressions. And you're also so generous of spirit and adept at cultivating an emerging generation and others around you. So I'm interested to know. Because your community, your writing community, your creative community is so collaborative and you've you've expressed that and you've shared that with us. But in, in a pandemic, like what's that been like? How has that part of your experience morphed? It's been really tough. On one hand, I'm really I've been pretty uh, homesick for a few years now and um, have been praying for some kind of a sabbatical, some kind of a break from the road because I really love to play music. It's hard to say no, you know, when it comes time to go out on the road and do my thing. I feel God's pleasure when I'm doing a concert. And so uh, at the same time, that part of me has been in tension with this deep weariness of constantly moving, constantly being on, on the move. And so I've been just aching to spend some real time at home. So in that sense, the 2020 has been a blessing because we've been able to be home but the hard part of it is, is that like the, the main thing that I do is kind of taken away from me. 
that also means uh, I haven't had any identity crisis situations, but it was it's easy to see how somebody could. Like if, if you identify too closely with what you do and what you do is then taken away from you, who are you, you know? <laughs> and so I, I haven't struggled with that because thank, thank goodness I out, outgrew that several years ago. But I have really ached to see my friends, you know? Mm-hmm. There's so much, so much camaraderie that happens on the road. And there's this like, you know, you've got your band of brothers and you're all out there fighting the good fight together and singing about the gospel and and laughing together after the shows. There's so much richness to that part of life. And and now that I've been home long enough, I've, I've really begun to realize how, how precious that is. You know, I'm missing it. But the Rabbit Room, which is a ministry that I'm a part of, um, we've been doing our best to pivot and provide, you know, resources for people and and uh, we hosted it. We had to change our conference to an online conference. The team cooked up the most wonderful, interactive online thing you can imagine. And so there have been little, you know, band-aids sort of, you know, it's not like it's, it's, it's replaced the in-person community, but it has made it, made it a lot easier. So I'm wondering, um, Andrew, because you're, you're referencing there Hutchmoot, which you did as a homebound thing this year. Is Hutchmoot, can, is that something that people can still actually like avail themselves of in a digital form? Or that was sort of like you were in the room or you weren't? So yeah, the Hutchmoot stuff was available for a short time, but like it's all, there's so much content that we're going to be, we're going to be like teasing out on the website. Um, there, I think there were 24 hours of uh, wow. content lectures from people, concerts, uh, all kinds of like cool discussions that were happening and uh, from everything from like, you know, C.S. Lewis to food. Um, <laughs> great, great conversations about, you know, God and creativity and all that kind of stuff. So, so yes, there's all this content that, have, that we're definitely going to, going to continue to share with people. Um, but that's kind of what the rabbit room is. It's just, you know, there's a page full of resources and just, it was one of the cool things about the lockdown when, when that happened. So many families were <laughs> who weren't homeschooling were suddenly their kids were home from school and they were trying to figure out how to use their time since they couldn't leave home easily. And the rabbit room, we had a staff meeting. We're like, oh, my goodness, we are so perfectly positioned to serve people because we have books and music and online book discussions and all of these resources that the rabbit room could give to people. And uh, it, was, it was just a joy to see. So much fun. Okay. So if you want to check that out, go to rabbitroom.com. Um, Andrew, I've got one more, uh, one more question for you. Um, and thank you again so much. Such a joy to talk with you. I have heard you say to aspiring writers and other artists, self-expression is dead. That, that really the creative effort has to be about serving the people who are like in need of a point of entry into glory, like a way of touching that which is holy. And that that's really this, all of this creative energy is poured into us that we might pour it into points where other people can access it. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, because I think that a lot of people imagine that producing art of any form is really about their self-expression. And that's not really what it's about. Yeah, I think that the, you'll, you'll run out of gas really quickly if your main goal is just to express yourself. And I would say, too, that if, if your goal is to leave a mark on the world, then that's, that's like a snake eating its own tail, too, because it's uh, self-glorification. I really think that art at its best is a way to love people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way of giving of yourself, laying down your life for the sake of another. 
that's when art is at, at its best. And ultimately, obviously, that your hope is that it points people home, that it, it points people to Christ. Uh, there's this uh, great C.S. Lewis essay, and it's about, you know, bigger ideas than what I, I even know how to explain. But, but the illustration, it's called like the illustration of the tool shed. He describes like walking into a tool shed and it's rusty and old and there are holes in the tin roof and that there are these beams of light coming down, you know, through and the, the beams of light are illuminating the dust motes and you can see these beautiful beams kind of falling on the floor. He's like, the, the beams of light are beautiful, right? But what you really want is to go and stand in the beam of light and look along the beam. And when you do that, then you can see outside of the tool shed at the trees and the blue sky and the sun. And I think uh, that's one principle in the rabbit room that we talk about a lot is that is that we do want to draw attention to good albums and books and the work that people are doing. And those things are all good. Those are all beams of light that are beautiful to behold. But what we really want is for those to be ways for people to come and stand in the light and look along the beam and see that there's this other world to see the source of the light, the source of the goodness and the beauty. And so I think as an artist, that's that's in my opinion, if you're a Christian and you're an artist that like, you want to do more than just illuminate the motes of dust. <laughs> you want to, you want to provide uh, an arrow that points to Jesus himself. And so I think the way to do that is, and the, I, I would say the way God does it is through longing. C.S. Lewis talks about, if I find in myself a desire that nothing on this earth can satisfy, then the most logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I think part of the point is to pay attention to those moments when your heart is feeling tugged with this longing, this dissatisfaction with the world as it is, this yearning for a world that is remade, uh, for bodies that don't die, for community that isn't fractured, <laughs> for you know a city that is holy and beautiful and brings glory to God. All of those things, I think art is one of the ways that God has given us to not just teach us something, not just to entertain us, or to give us pleasure, like all those things are good, they can be good, but ultimately it's what's on the other side of it. That's the real power of art, I think. Well, and Andrew, I think what you've just articulated is the sort of the substantial reality of hope. Hope is not something that's just mystical or ethereal or even imagined. It, it is real, it is substantial. And yeah, mm. it's on the other side of, of what we experience right now, but it's real, it's real, it's real reality. Andrew Peterson, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the Wing Feather Saga is now available in a beautiful four-book hardcover set. Uh, we want you to encourage you to check that out. If you are interested in entering the drawing for the copies we have, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Check it all out at wingfeathersaga.com. You can also check out Rabbit Room. You can check out everything Andrew's doing, andrew-peterson.com. Good one-stop place to check all of that out. Andrew, thank you uh, so much. Thank you, Carmen. Good to talk to you. You too. We'll be right back. So I'm I'm actually loath to share this headline with you, but I feel like um, if I don't periodically point us and direct us to remind us to pray the news today where people are living in particularly tragic um, situations. I, I feel like I need to alert you to the crisis in Mozambique. It is escalating. Um, and some of the things that we have seen over the course of 
um, of recent decades in terms of the use of machetes to um, eliminate entire villages. Apparently, that is now what is taking place in a northern province, uh, province of Mozambique. Let us be uh, pleading to God today um, for his intervention that security forces for the nation of Mozambique would be um, would have the supplies that they need and be able to bring to an end the massacres that are now taking place among uh, women and children and full complete villages that are being burned down and people executed. I just it's one of those tragically heartbreaking sober headlines and we have to be aware of it as we pray the news recognizing that God does have the whole world in his hands even in those places and spaces that seem horrifically out of control. Let's be praying today for our own nation as well. I'm praying for you. You be praying for me. Let's walk out our faith into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.